at the end of this summer, he asked me to marry him. And I was like, whoa, 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 slow down. And I said, you know, I'm not saying no, but I'm not saying yes. And I was like, I got to go back to New York and start grad school. And like, that feels like a little bit much. I was 23 and he was 33. And so I said, you know, if you can find a way to come to New York, then we can talk about it. Getting married at that age was just not what I wanted to do. It wasn't that I was anti-marriage. I just wasn't ready. Although I was intrigued because I was like, well, maybe this is my guy. Today, Syria is known for a brutal civil war that seems to have no end. But Syria was once a refuge for archaeologists who were fleeing turmoil in Iran and Iraq and eager to work on Syria's rich heritage sites. Tel Brak is one of those places. You might not have heard of it. It was one of the biggest cities in Upper Mesopotamia in 4000 BC. The artifacts excavated there in the 20th century wound up in museums in Britain and Syria. Laura, our archaeologist, found herself in Tel Brak in 1998 and 2000. In this episode, she explains why excavations there redefined how we see the history of Mesopotamia, and by extension, humanity. But to get up close and personal with history at a place like Tel Brak meant sleeping in tents, keeping wild dogs at bay, and getting detained by Syrian police. This is Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Today, we're continuing on Laura's journey into Afghanistan. If you're new to this podcast, we recommend going back to start with episode one. For everyone else, welcome back. Let's jump in. May 10th, 1998, 6 p.m., Tel Brak, Syria. I feel stronger, maybe even happier, competent. These days are good for me. Archaeology suits me, and I can feel it. The field work is good. The workers at Tel Brock are frustrating and hilarious and beautiful. I so much love the dirt on me every day. The shower is such a reward. Take us to Syria. How did you wind up there? I was working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Met was sponsoring an excavation. Either I asked to go or I was invited to go. I was a little further along in graduate school at this time, and so I knew a little bit more. I ended up spending two summers in Syria. The first was in 1998. I flew to Damascus with one other person, and I was tasked with helping to set up the camp of the excavation, which was far in northeastern Syria, so pretty close to the border with Iraq and with Turkey. There's that kind of little portion of Syria that juts out. It was pretty rugged at the excavation. I mean, we were sleeping in tents. There was no running water. A toilet was a hole in the ground with a little tarp around it, but the tarp only came up waist high. Everybody was using the same toilet. So at this point, are you like, oh, I'm really glad I became an archaeologist? <laughs> Somehow I didn't. It just was par for the course. I didn't mind that. <laughs> what I didn't like was at night, wild dogs would come into the tent where I was sleeping. And there was nowhere to put your suitcase but on the ground. And I had some brownies in there that my mom had sent me in a care package. And the dogs ate my brownies 
And I was like, God damn it. I hope they get sick. That I'll say was pretty annoying. But aside from that, it was just thrilling. It was so exciting to be there. That excavation was in 98. And then I went back to the same site two years later in 2000. And what does the area look like? It's very beige, pretty dry. There's irrigated farming. Who controls water between Turkey and Syria? That's a topic for another time because that's Mm -hmm. very important. Mostly it was dry, barren. Conditions were not bad. They were better in Syria in 98 than I found conditions for the average Afghan in Afghanistan when I started working there 10 years ago. Families had television sets and books in the house and running water and beds, things like that. Gardens, lots of kids. Everybody seemed to have lots of kids. And steady electricity, I suppose. Steady, I don't know, but electricity for sure. It might have been steady, although it's a much different place now, George, in 2021. Those were different days in Syria. Remember, there was a lot of litter everywhere. Why not just pick up the trash? But that's not how it works. There's no municipal services coming around every Tuesday morning to pick up your trash. It's different. All right. You reminded me tomorrow's trash day. I got to put the trash out. Get on it, George. But what a benefit to have a municipal service where I can reliably put the trash out and have it disappear, right? Mm -hmm. Take that for granted too, innit? Yep. March 21st, 2000, Tuesday, Telbrock, Syria. Here again, after almost two years, and it seems so familiar as if I'm picking up a portion of myself again. It feels odd struggling with Arabic with the workmen, struggling to stay warm and cheerful. My life at home already feels so far away. People, friends, and family seem far outside of myself in this place. What was it that you were digging up in Syria? Oh, it was this fascinating site. Its name is Tel Brock. You know who was first part of the earliest excavations there in the 1920s or 30s? Oh, I would assume it would have been the Italians or the French. The British. British. And the senior British archaeologist was married to Agatha Christie. Oh. So Agatha Christie was working at that site way back. And it had continued as a British excavation off and on, you know, interrupted by World War II and then resumed over the years. I was there on behalf of the Metropolitan Museum, and then there was a small British team and a small Danish team that also joined. It was basically a city that we were excavating, and it was very new and interesting discoveries at the time because traditionally scholars and archaeologists thought that the earliest cities, so let me just put a little time marker on it, let's just say roughly around 4,000 BC to 3,000 BC, that those earliest cities were all founded and clustered in Iraq in between the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. And people thought that because that's where all the archaeology was being done. That's what they're finding. And so that writes the story. Well, then there was the first Gulf War, and that really interrupted people's ability to do archaeology in Iraq. So all the archaeologists, the Brits, the Italians, the Americans, they had to refocus 
where were they going to dig now? If you can't get into Iran, Iraq's a little bit difficult. Like, mm. So people started focusing their research in Syria with a more concerted effort. And as that happened, it shifted what archaeologists were finding and what people who could read ancient texts that were being found in Syria were interpreting was that the story wasn't quite like we thought for a hundred years. And that north of Iraq, this area of northern Syria, close to Turkey, it actually was very much a antecedent of sophistication and urban development just prior to the major cities that we think of in Iraq. And it wasn't on a major river. Tell Brock, the site where I was working was not on a major river. Was a major river even nearby? Might have been. And we did have a specialist on the project who looked at shifting water courses. It's been a while now, so I'm not super fresh on what the research was showing then or even now. Well, no one's really excavated in Syria now for 10 years because of the civil war. Hey, Laurie, so so when a civil war happens, as it did in Syria, where do archaeologists go? They can no longer work at those sites. Right. Where did all the archaeologists working on Syria's sites end up going after 2011? Good question. I know one went to Sudan and shifted focus to Sudan. The others, maybe Jordan, so elsewhere in the Levant, maybe Lebanon. I lost track of what those scholars are focused on right now. What did you dig up personally in Syria? What kind of things were you holding between your fingers? Yeah, I was digging through about a thousand years of history in the unit that I was assigned to excavate. I was sort of the senior, I put in extended quotations, the senior archaeologist in the area I was excavating. But there were 10 Syrian men who were doing the hard stuff, like the pickaxes and the shoveling and the the heavy lifting, just to make that clear. When you're digging through a thousand years of history over the course of, say, eight, 10 weeks, you're finding a lot of different things. I went through a couple levels of houses, small, modest houses, and then you get below that and, oh, this appears to be something that was a space where animals were kept because here's a trough and a watering hole. You have to kind of interpret it. So there wasn't one single thing I was excavating. You're looking through, going in reverse order through time. May 18th, 2000, 2 a.m., Hasaka, Hotel Sanibel. Back at the hotel after hours in the police station, I'm sitting by the window and I can see the minder just outside. After hours of questions, they brought in the translator and he was sympathetic to me. But they said they'd bring me back tomorrow for more questions. I hope this ends soon and I can go on to Aleppo. Syria at the time is a police state. I'm wondering if you had encounters periodically with Syrian police. I did. I did indeed, George. I didn't understand how severe a police state it was 
and how oppressive it was for the Syrians until I had a personal experience with it. I was leaving the excavation. I was traveling by myself and I was taking a bus from the city Hasaka, which is close to the border with Turkey. And I was taking a bus to Aleppo. I was traveling not just with my personal suitcase, but I also was tasked with bringing a couple of plastic bins full of equipment from the excavation. And I got stopped at the bus stop by the police. At first, I thought they were curious because I was a foreign lady by herself at a bus stop in rural Syria. It became clear that it was more than that. And they opened up everything I had in the parking lot of the bus stop, which was creating quite a lot of attention. People were coming by and watching, and I barely spoke Arabic. I could make out some. And they went through everything in my suitcase, my toiletry bag. They were pulling out tampons and face cream. And then they went through the bins of the archaeological gear, and there was a bag of pottery sherds in there which were to be taken to the States for research. I could not produce the paperwork that satisfied the police to confirm that this was legitimate, that these pottery shirts, they were broken pieces of pottery. So nothing that was ever going to show up in a museum. They were strictly for research value, but you still needed permission, rightly so, to take those out. I was brought to a police station in Hasaka and interrogated is the right word for about six hours. It might have been longer. It felt like a very long time. I was only allowed to make one phone call. It was not an international phone. I don't remember the option of calling the States. I called the only Syrian whose number I had. I didn't realize this till later. I was now implicating him, right? Because the police, it's so oppressive. They've got this American lady in a police station way out in eastern Syria for suspicion of looting or smuggling, and she wants to call one Syrian. So I called him, and I have a feeling the police really harassed him and his family after that, and there really wasn't much he could do for me. After the questioning, the police let me go. Uh, They brought me to a hotel in Hasaka where I stayed the night by myself in a room. I knew I was being watched just outside the hotel. I wasn't allowed to leave the hotel. And the next day, they put me on a bus. I took the bus to Aleppo, and I had a minder. They sent a minder with me who sat a few seats back on the opposite row. It wasn't stealthy. It wasn't intended to be stealthy. They wanted me to know I was being, you know, escorted out. I got to Aleppo. That's where I met up with the others on the archaeological dig. And I was wow, listen to this story. Sorry I'm late, guys. Did you show up with or without the fragments? Without. So they kept them. The police kept them. They did. And George, let me put this in context. Think of a quart-sized Ziploc bag. That was it. I had like survey equipment, which if you don't know what survey equipment is, it can look like surveillance equipment but it was archaeological survey equipment, a tripod and dusty tools and a quart-sized Ziploc bag of broken pottery shirts. I went to Aleppo for a couple of days and then I had to fly to Yerevan because I had onward research to do in Armenia. So I go from Aleppo to Damascus by a bus. 
I get on a flight in Damascus to Yerevan and the minder was still there. The minder was on the flight with me from Damascus to Yerevan all the way to the little hostel I was staying in in Yerevan. And it wasn't until I got to Yerevan that I could actually call somebody in my family and be like, I'm fine. I'm in Armenia, but that was weird. Let me tell you what happened. And it never occurred to me to contact the U.S. Embassy in Damascus. I wish it had, but it it hadn't occurred to me to do that. And now I work for the State Department, and that would be the first thing I would tell somebody to do. But at that time, I just didn't want to get in trouble, or I just wanted to leave after that. Did you end up going back to Syria after that? I didn't. I did stay in touch for a while with some friends that I made there, but I never have gone back. I'd love to go back one day when it's possible. April 23rd, 2000. It's Easter. My only acknowledgement was a treat of some Easter candy. And I caught a glimpse of the Pope on TV. Abdel Jalil brought me a horse today for riding. He'd promised he'd do so, but I don't know what he did to find a horse. And I jumped on galloping along, and then she stopped dead and dropped her head. And I flew over, landing safely but pretty bruised. The highlight was seeing Abdel Jalil. What about the Syrian dude? Did you stay in touch with him? I did. I did. We had a a really lovely friendship and he would write letters to me in Arabic, which I, I couldn't read. But I had a good friend in grad school who was an Arabist. So she was fluent in Arabic and she would read the letters for me and then tell me what they said. They were really love letters and very sweet. And I have kept them all. So you dated? We didn't date, George. You courted. We didn't, we didn't even... He courted you unbeknownst to you. I mean, I think I caught on later that he was interested because once he invited me to his sister's house where I went, he did say there that monotheists, so Christians, Jews, and Muslims, he had checked and it was okay for a Muslim man to marry a Christian woman. And he knew I was Christian. Yeah, he's getting ready. This is a part of Syria where there were quite a few Christians, you know, so it's like it wasn't, it wouldn't have been unheard of to have a a mixed religion marriage. No, not in that part of Syria. There were a lot of interfaith friendships, relationships, and so on. Sure. Yeah, sure. I even remember visiting a church in Hasaka. So, and I liked him also. I think I probably did in my mind go to be like, well, what would this be like? I mean, he's kind of a farmer and he was very handsome. And he also had only one arm. Um, (laughs) I like the way you just threw that in. Yeah. Just by the way. His right arm was severed just above the elbow. That's pretty hard if you're a farmer and you only have one arm. Yeah, it was something we would talk about sometimes, what that was like for him. And he asked me once, did I think that God punished him for something when his arm was severed when he was 11 or 12 years old and a donkey cart fell on top of his arm and injured it to such an extent that the rest of it had to come off? 
he had asked me once, did I think that he was being punished cosmically? And that's why his arm was severed and it didn't happen to one of his brothers. I didn't think it was he was being punished. That's what I said to him. I never saw him again. I did continue to receive letters. I would write letters to him. I think he received them. I know he received some of them. And I don't know what's become of him. And I do think about him. The the country's been at war for 10 years. It has. wonder. Yeah. April 6, 1994, New York. Tumult right now. Nervousness in my life about the schoolwork and all the deadlines. I feel grotesquely mediocre. As if school has eclipsed so many facets of my creativity and I'm yearning for light. I just need time and solitude. If I allow myself the distance to see what it is I want, I don't even know what it is. Tell me about Rita in graduate school. So Rita, Rita Wright was my PhD advisor at NYU. She was, um, she is brilliant and a little bit formidable. I was definitely not her star student. There were other grad students who seemed to be really excelling in a way in graduate school that I was doing fine. But Rita, I didn't know it at the time. I just thought she had like the most exacting standards and nothing was going to be quite good enough. What I think Rita was very in her way, in her kind way, trying to groom her female students to that you're going to have to work twice as hard and your work is going to have to be exceptional in a field that's dominated by men. So don't mess it up. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that until much later. She cut her teeth at Harvard in a graduate program that was almost entirely male-dominated. And I think she really learned some probably difficult lessons. And she maybe was trying to help her female students learn some things that maybe she didn't know at the time. February 16th, 1996. Today, while in conversation with a senior colleague at the Metropolitan, a good familiarity between us, I think a mutual respect, certainly on my side. And we spoke of the state of the field in ancient Near Eastern archaeology. And he told me the most important characteristics are moral integrity and academic integrity. I think Rita has these traits. One of the kindest things Rita did for me was I was a young fellow at the Metropolitan Museum. I was a second or third year grad student. I had this fellowship at the Metropolitan Museum where I got to study some artifacts that were in the museum's collection and I ultimately wrote my master's thesis on that. That's beside the point. As a fellow, you're invited to give a talk on the topic of your research. I was young in graduate school and it was my day to give a talk and there were all these very fancy curators 
in attendance. It wasn't open to the, or it might've been open to the public, but I don't remember really many public being there. It was mostly the very learned curators of the Metropolitan Museum. And this one male curator, I won't say what department he worked in, but he was in an archaeological-ish department. And he was sitting in the front row, right in front of my podium, where I was delivering the talk nervously. Like, get it, George, you're a young graduate student and you're presenting your research to the most senior respected people in your field. That's terrifying already. And then add a gender difference to that. And it's double terrifying. A little bit, yes. And the curator is famous in that field guy. While I delivered the talk, he shifted in his chair from left to right. He sighed audibly. He crossed (laughs) his arms. At one point, he tilted his head back like he might have been, I don't know, dozing off. But his gestures and his noises while I was nervously giving this 20-minute talk were so distracting and Mm. upsetting And at the time, Rita didn't come to that talk. She might have been busy with something else. But when I got back to NYU, so, you know, you go from uptown to downtown and I go back to Rita's office and she's like, how did it go? By the way, she had had me practice that talk 10 times in front of her. And I told her, oh, Rita, there was so-and-so, he was sitting right in front of me and he did, you know, X, Y, Z, like I just described to you. And she went ballistic, She was like, he did that on purpose. He was definitely trying to distract you and diminish your presentation. It was her way of sticking up for me. If she ever followed up privately and contacted that guy, I have no idea. Yeah, so I get it that you don't want to identify him by his department. So just tell us his name. (laughs) Come on, what's his name? I'm not saying. Does it start with an A? No. Does it start with a B? Stop it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I almost wish we could talk to him. Be like, what the fuck, man? Have you become a better human being since then? Yeah. I'd keep your expectations low. Yeah. But maybe he has. You can always hope for a miracle. I don't even know if he still works at the Met. You know, this was what, 1995? That was a while ago. Mm-hmm. It didn't undo me entirely. It was a good learning experience. And Rita's reaction, she never said to me, you're overreacting, Laura. She never said, oh, yeah, just get used to it. She was furious. And I think on my behalf, and maybe for all the time something like that happened to her. And she was a MacArthur Genius Fellow. So... You know, people need to sit straight and not audibly sigh when she's delivering a talk. But I can imagine that it probably had happened to her in life also. What's his name? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Okay, I'll lay off. (laughs) I'll have to go back to my journal, George, on that one. I'm sure I wrote Uh, it down. Yeah. Does it make me a horrible human being that I want to punch him in the dick? Please do. (laughs) Will you come with me? And deliver the second punch? Yeah, I'll I'll punch him in the neck. (laughs) Well, Rita sounds awesome. She is. And there's something so wonderful about having a strong mentor like that. I wish all human beings had a strong mentor in their life. Yeah, right. With the right moral compass. Right. I should qualify it. There was something I was able to do for Rita in an 
unverbalized gesture of thanks and support to her in that I helped arrange for her to come to Afghanistan in 2011. And she had not been there since 1978. Oh my God. Wow. She was there to do research at Messinoc on a little short research project. I really did a lot of background work to help facilitate her visit where she stayed and made sure that a reputable driver was taking care of her and, you know, work in the network, calling in some favors. That was very meaningful to me that Rita could come back to Afghanistan, which is where she had her first archaeological experience in the late 70s. And then I, much later in my career, and thanks to Rita, was as far along in my career as I was, could help facilitate her return. And I loved seeing her there. That is very cool. Do you think she'd be open to talking with us about her experiences in Afghanistan back in the 70s? I think she would. I think that she would. She's retired now. And I know she's very busy writing books and, you know, finishing articles the way academics always have articles in the train. I spoke to her actually just last week. She wanted to talk about Afghanistan on a Sunday morning. She sent me an email and said, call me. So I called her immediately and we had a a long chat. Nice. That's nice. You've been listening to Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch, also follow us on Instagram at The Monuments Woman. Join us next week when we dive deeper. This show is produced by Christian D. Brune and May 11 Project. It is recorded by Audovita Studios and edited by Sean Hedinger and Greg Williams. The theme song is This Love by Ariana Delawari featuring Salar Nader. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.